Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. start this off with some uh, prayer before we dive into it, all right? Father in heaven, thank you so much for giving us space to be able to come and worship, to be able to sing songs, to be led, and to be able to come together just under uh, your headship is just one voice, one faith, one baptism, uh, just right here serving one Lord. And so God, we thank you that you give us this space to be able to come and, and call it home. And God, as we get into the text, I pray, Lord, that you just reveal our desperate need for you, our need to be delivered, our need to be redeemed, our need to be saved, and not just because we're in an interesting season, Lord, but because that's our spiritual state, we need to be delivered by you uh, from this world, Lord. And so reveal that to us. As always, I pray for my own thoughts, uh, my own feelings, my own emotions. Slow my thoughts, if you could, Lord, help me to be present uh, in this moment, be attentive to your word. Uh, attentive to your spirit, attentive to those who are in the room, help me to push in and pull back and in the right times. And I pray the same for those that are sitting here. Uh, as always, Lord, I pray that we might lose track of time together as a family. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. amen. All right, my name is uh, Corey. For those of you that might be guests in the room, I'm one of the, teach- uh, one of the pastors on staff. I get to be your teaching pastor uh, for today. So excited to get to do this uh, today, it's, it's been a, a while since I got to teach in here with the, the way that everything's been flowing, so I'm pumped. Uh, we're going to have to get right into it, though, as I have a lot to do in just a little bit of time, okay? And so uh, we're currently in a series called Lest We Turn. We're in the book of 1 Samuel, uh, where we have been reading and spending time in the Old Testament together as a church. You'll see these cards that are setting out, and they will give you a reading plan as, so that you can kind of keep up uh, as to where we are going. I'm not going to do a big recap this week because I want to spend as much time as I can here in 1 Samuel chapter 12. And so I have three points for you. Uh, three points, pretty clear, pretty simple. Miss Linda will throw them up for you. It's that God is righteous. You are not. And so own it. Pretty clear. Okay. I could think we could probably just take communion now and be done. You know what I'm saying? God is righteous. You are not. Own it. If you're on Facebook, it is literally just that simple. Thank you for tuning in. One big idea for you, if you're a note taker, and that is that God's devotion to us will always outweigh our devotion to him. God's devotion to us will always outweigh our devotion to him. Sound good? All right, let's hit it. We're going to start with God is righteous. Uh, I'm going to sum up for you, though, verse 1 through 11. This will not be on the screen. I'm just going to kind of sum it up uh, for you. Basically, what has happened is that Samuel here has created a courtroom scenario for the people of Israel, and he's coming in, and he's really putting the public in a position to judge a God-ordained leader. And in this case, he's putting the people in a position to judge him, at himself, Samuel, as a God-appointed or a God-ordained leader before all of them. And so Samuel comes in, and he says, who have I wronged? He starts off by saying, whose donkey have I stolen? That's a good way to start the argument, right? Like, whose donkey? Was it your donkey? Was it your, did I steal anyone's stuff? Did I lie to anyone? Have I come against anyone? And so he's kind of putting them on the, on the spot, if I may, and he's saying, no, I haven't done any of that. What I have done is I've put a king over you, which is what you requested, but I haven't done anything wrong. I am 
innocent before you. And so Samuel is drawing a direct line from this reality that Israel wanted to put a human appointed leader over them, a king that we'll find out is King Saul. And he's drawing this line. Samuel is drawing this line saying, what did God say this king would do? He said he would steal your men, he would steal your women, he would steal your servants, he would take them to build chariots and to ride horses, horses, he would send them in the battle and kill them, and then he would conquer all of your land, stealing your land from you for himself, for his namesake. And so Samuel's drawing out this position, kind of this argument, if I may, and he says, look at what God has done. God ordained leader, it's going pretty good for you. Human ordained leader, it's going to go very badly. And he's kind of put them in this uh, courtroom scenario scenario, if I may. And then he says, what do, you, what do you find in me? Do you find me guilty or innocent? To which all of Israel would say, he's innocent. As we are a witness is what the text would say if we were to read it. And then Samuel recaps what they said. Okay, so you said that I'm innocent and God has said that I'm innocent and God's anointed, who is Saul, God's anointed, who is Saul, he thinks that I'm innocent. And even in that moment, what Samuel is saying is, you guys think that you've ordained a king? But there's only one king, and he's the one who's actually ordained Saul. And it will not be for your benefit, but it will most certainly be for your discipline. And so he's reminding the people, you think that you've ordained a king, but you most certainly have not. Now, verse 6 and 7 to help us here. Now he's going to transition, Miss Linda, verse 6 and 7, put it for me if you could. It says this, and Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may, verse seven, now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. And so Samuel now is kind of transitioning, saying, look at me and my innocence. I'm most certainly innocent before you. I'm innocent. Look at God has appointed me. God has put me in a position. I'm innocent. Now he's not fully innocent because he's human and he's not Jesus, right? But he's stating this case. And now he's transitioning, saying, not only am I innocent, but God is righteous. Recall all of the things that God has done for you. Samuel literally says, let me plead with you concerning the righteous deeds of the Lord. And then if we were to continue reading, what we would see is that Samuel will take Samuel, uh, take Israel through a history of God's redeeming work in them from Egypt all the way through the judges to where they're at right now. He doesn't hit everything. He just hits big milestones, just recalling it's calling Israel to recall the redemptive work of this perfectly righteous God before them. He's in no way saying that all of the judges who came before him were perfect. If you were with us at all, you know, far from the truth, right? Those judges were jacked. Uh, we could have just named the series that, a series of jacked up judges. It would have went great for us. <laughs> he is simply stating the God who brought deliverance. Listen, the God who brought deliverance to Israel is righteous. The God who's brought deliverance, not just once, but time and time and time and time again. He is faithful. He is innocent. He is good and just to redeem Israel, right? If we were to read all that Samuel had to say, and I put this on Facebook, I think yesterday, if we were to read all that Samuel had to say, he would talk about God's redeeming work, and he does it by stating three different times the great opposition that came against Israel. And then he follows that up with four different deliverers. It's a three, four writing in the Hebrew, if you're a nerd. And so he kind of lays this out. And what Samuel is saying in this moment, mentioning three different times there's great opposition and four different times there's a great deliverance, he's saying this, all you have known, Israel, is deliverance. 
It's all that you know. And it has come from a God-ordained leader, not from who you thought you should follow, not from anyone that is human or ordained, not in any way, shape, or form, but rather a God-ordained leader. He's saying all you know is deliverance. If you think about that with me for a minute, what have we seen? Israel has ran. They have worshiped other gods. They've pursued other gods. They're over here worshiping sticks and stones. And then God sweeps in. The, the one true God of all creation sweeps in. What does he do? He delivers them. He redeems them. They follow other gods. They begin to worship other gods. They realize that they're at fault because things are going really, really bad. They repent. They confess. God, we need you. God steps in, sends a human deliverer, and he delivers them. So we've seen every time, isn't it? And so Samuel here is like pleading with Israel that they might see that every time that they stepped into sinful worship of another God or another false idol or some other leader, the true God has delivered them every single time. And so Israel over here worshiping sticks and stones, what Samuel is revealing is this. They don't actually want a king that they can follow. They want another king that they can worship. That's not their king, not the one true king of Israel. They want a king that they can manipulate. As they actually said, they want a king that can fight their battles for them. That's not a king at all, right? That's them wanting to be kings and wanting to ordain someone that they can manipulate. They want a slave is what they ultimately want. And so Samuel is coming to the innocent defense of God saying this, God is always at work. Most certainly whenever you're not, God has always come to your defense and to your deliverance whenever you've rebelled against him. Why? Because God is righteous. You are not. Second point is this, you are not righteous. Verse 12 through 15 says this, and Miss Linda throw it up for us. First Samuel 12, 12 through 15, a bit to read, but not too much. It says this, <clears throat> and when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. Not God, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your what? King, when the Lord was your what? Your king. So he's reminding them, right? You were looking at the other nations. You were looking out at what other kings had and what the kingship looked like. And all the while, you had a king. Yet you wanted to be like the nations. And so what he just recalled, remember everything that God has done for you, all the deliverance that has happened, right? And then he reminds them of this, right? Whenever you saw this other king, you were like, no, 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 no. We want that. We don't want the deliverance of Yahweh, the one true God king. And so now let's continue. And now behold, here it is, it's like a parent talking to a child. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set the king over you. So reminding them even again, you did not ordain this king. You asked for this king and you did it with ill intent. They did it with a dark and broken heart because they wanted to look like everyone else. And, and here he's reminding Israel of God's sovereignty and his plan over the nation and him being truly the one king. So behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Now, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. Sounds easy enough, doesn't it? But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but you rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Like this is a, this is an intimidating moment right here, church. Right? They're getting like a good talking to from dad. You with me? It's a really intimidating moment. Samuel is revealing that while the people have asked for a king, it is the true king. It is the Lord God Almighty whom they are rejecting. 
in their ass. They're not just in sin, they're in habitual disobedience. Habitual rebellion is what he's calling to mind, right? And so God is not doing what Israel has asked him to do because, God, because Israel has asked. God is going to set a king over them because he promised he would in the book of Deuteronomy that Pastor David read last week or the week before. So God's not responding to humanity. He's not at the, the will or the beckoning call of humans. Rather, what he's doing is just keeping his word, which other kings will not. He's going to be faithful, which other kings will not. He's going to use humanity's terrible plan to try to redeem themselves, and he's going to reverse that so that he's the one who gets to bring redemption to Israel for his namesake, as he'll say later, just to reveal how desperately humanity needs him. And so God has promised a king. He's going to deliver that king, not because he wants Israel to look like the nations, but because he wants Israel to look like him. It's important that we understand what's happening here. It's interesting to me, and I thought about this week, I wonder how, how often do we also pray prayers just to fit in? Like Israel prayed and asked for a king so they could look like the nations. How often do we as a church body, as individuals, as a corporate body, those that are looking online, like how often do you think that we pray prayers just so we can look like the nations? How, how often do you think that we maybe pray prayers because we have someone in mind instead of wanting to pray prayers so that we might be sanctified and look like Jesus. I think more often than not, we probably pray prayers because we want to look a certain way in front of people instead of being sanctified before a holy God. That's what Israel has done. I've said this a hundred times, but I'm going to hit you with it again. The, the worst, I need you to know, the worst thing God can do for you if you're a selfish person is answer your prayers. I mean, think about it. The worst thing that God can do if you're selfish is answer your prayers. I'm going through this Dave Ramsey stuff with the Wittens and watching these videos online. And, and this guy, Dave Ramsey, is like talking about money. And he's like, some of you want more money. He goes, you know what more money will do? It'll make you, it'll bring out the worst parts of your life and magnify them. But how, many, how, many, how often do we pray for money? Because we want more things. We don't want to look like God. Rich in earthly things, not in... God, listen, for God to answer your prayers, if you're truly a selfish person praying these prayers, if God were to answer your prayers, it would not be a taste of his grace, church. It would be a taste of his wrath. Sometimes you don't want God or need God to answer the prayers you're praying right now. You tracking? So God simply says, you want to look like the nations? He says, okay. Okay. It's like whenever like, the kid keeps asking for a cookie, right? And finally, his mom or dad, you're like, all right, eat that cookie. And they're like, I don't, I don't think I want it anymore. <laughs> I don't think, you know, go ahead and eat that cookie. Let's see what happens, right? Go ahead. Get it. Go ahead and get one. Get two. Let's go. They're like, mm-mm, this is a trick, right? This is what's happening right here in the text. God simply says, you want to look like the nations? Okay. Okay, I'm going to give you a king. We'll discuss, we'll discuss this king more next week, but we're going to see that God is going to give them a king that does not even really wor fully worship him. No different than the nation of Israel. We're going to give him a God. They're going to give him, sorry, God's going to give him a king who's impatient, also no different than Israel. God's going to give them a king that thinks he knows best and so effectively stops seeking the Lord and asking, like, what should we do in this scenario? Also no different than Israel. He's going to give them a, a king that will effectively look like the rest of the nations so that that will keep Israel looking like what? The rest of the nations. And so the father says, you want that? Okay, go ahead. Let's see how that goes for you. Samuel gave them a, a simple task on one hand and an incredibly difficult task on the other. 
He said, all you have to do is keep the commandments of God, be devoted, and listen, they couldn't do it. That's all he said, right? He said, just, hey, follow after the Lord, keep those commands, you and your king, you do those things, it'll go pretty well for you, but if you don't do those things, it's gonna go really, really bad. If you don't keep the law of God, if you don't keep the commandments of God, both you and your king, you will be, as we'll read in a minute, swept away, which is pretty heavy that Katie read for us. And so here's the deal. I want you to stay with me for a minute. I'm going to try to take you on a bit of a journey here and expose your, your heart through the law, if the Lord will allow me. Samuel says, keep the commands of God. Okay, stay with me. It says, keep the commands of God. Do you know why they could not keep the commands of God? Why they couldn't keep the law of God? Do you know why? Because it's impossible. I mean, the majority of you don't know the Ten Commandments in the room, Right? If I were to have you stand up and you grew, that's Sunday school. That's just Sunday school. That's flannel gram stuff for you that are raised in the church, right? Like, but if I were to have you to recount, what are the 10? You'd be like, I don't know, like, don't steal, don't covet, don't murder, don't, I don't know, I'm all out, right? Let alone the 613 commands. Did you even know there's 613 actual commands that Israelite had to keep? You thought, <laughs> you thought 10 were hard, okay? 613, we're getting into like, what kind of fabrics can you wear, okay? It's like, it's crazy town whenever you get in there. And so it's impossible for them to keep the law. And yet the command still stands to keep the commands of God, to keep not just some of the commands, but all of the commands of God. And so to be clear, the commands are not impossible to follow. They're not impossible. They're pretty easy. Don't kill, don't steal, don't murder. That's pretty easy. That's top, that's bottom shelf stuff. That's not top shelf stuff. And so he says it, but at the same time, they are impossible because the effects, listen, the effects of the sinful flesh that we are born into run so rampant in our hearts and mind that the effects of sin make it doggone near impossible to follow the, God, the commands of God. It's because we're born into this thing called total depravity. And the effects of sin and flesh, they run rampant in our minds and in our hearts. And they make it that not only do we not follow the commands of God, we don't even want to. I mean, literally, how much thought do you put into the Ten Commandments on a daily basis? Very rarely, if ever. Like, that's the effects of sin in our lives we're born into. So Samuel simply says, keep the commandments of God, and at the same time, reveals the complexity of that command to keep the commands of God. It, it reveals how finite humans are. It reveals how, how imperfect humans are. It reveals how guilty humans are as we stand before this holy God. What's beautiful about this is that the commands of God, that is the law, that is the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the 613 commands that you didn't know existed until a moment ago, those commands, they're not given to you as a list of to-dos or to-don'ts, as people would say. The commands are first and foremost given to us so that we can understand the character of who God is. Like the 10 commandments that are given are not given to, to kind of put a bridge or a wall around you to keep you from going into fun town, okay? Like what, what they're given to us for is so when we see this thing, we go, oh my gosh, that is the character of God. The law reveals the character of God. The first five books of the Bible reveal the character of God. And at the same time, those things as we get into do not steal and do not covet and do not commit adultery, what they reveal is that the true God king is in every way different than whoever the humans would have wanted to ordain. He's the exact opposite of what King Saul and the exact opposite of what King David is going to do. And so as we get into the, what's called the law and as you read through all these commands, what happens then is the character of God begins to shoot off the pages into your face. And you think that's who God is. 
He does not kill. He does not steal. He does not commit adultery. He does not covet. He is not jealous of anything I have, but oh, is he jealous for me? Yes. He's jealous for us. This is why many years later, and this is where you need to keep, keep bearing with me. This is why many years later in the New Testament, that's the second portion of the Bible, there's a guy by the name of Paul. The Apostle Paul writes a letter to a church in Rome called the Letter of Romans. A letter to the Romans. This is after Jesus. This is after his resurrection. Do not miss this. Listen to me. Romans 7, 7 through 15. The only notes I have on here is just to take you through the text. We'll just see what the Spirit does. But watch, watch him continue to press this out. Paul says this. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means, exclamation point. Listen, if it not, had not been for the law, or look at me, the commands, or the Pentateuch, or the Torah, or the first five books of the Bible, put all those words where it says law. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, right? You don't know you're doing something wrong until someone comes to you and says, hey, by the way, you should stop lying to people. That's not healthy for you or your relationship. You're like, oh, dang, I didn't know that. I didn't see that coming, okay? Turns out I lie all the time. <laughs> Like, for I would have not known sin, right? For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Oh, okay, I shouldn't do that. But sin, listen, sin, not the law, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, you shall not covet, produced in me all sorts of covetousness, right? If I tell you, hey, you're a liar, you're like, no, I'm not, and get defensive, and then I think, well, what about this, what about this, what about this? That commandment begins to reveal, oh, it's not, I lie all the time. I'm on my way, right? While you're still tying your shoes, trying to get to the car. You're not on your way. Nowhere near on your way. How many people have done it? I'm almost there, right? Like I literally can share your location. I know where you are, okay? <laughs> you're not here. But sin, okay, verse eight, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment, as it's, sin is being revealed, it seizes an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all sorts of, all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, had I not known, he's saying, sin lies dead. We don't know about sin, right? I was once alive apart from the law. He's saying, dude, I was partying before I found out how bad I was. I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin uh, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. No different than 3,000 years earlier, 2,500 years earlier, whenever Samuel looks at the people and says, only follow the commandments and it will go well for you. What is he saying? He's given a, a promise. Follow the command, it'll go well. Turns out the commands only reveal death. They reveal the glory of God and then they reveal how sinful we are. Sin leads to what? Death, so it reveals death. The very commandment that promised, verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Verse 11, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it, it killed me. So then is there something against the laws or something against the Old Testament or something against the commands? Verse 12, so, is, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and it is righteous and it is good. You still tracking? And so what he's saying, Paul is just simply saying what I'm saying about 1 Samuel in chapter 12. He's saying, no, we have to have the law. We need the commands. Why? Because they reveal the very character and nature of God himself. And at the same time, reveal we are not those things. We are not those things. Verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be what it is, which is what? Sin. And throughout the commandment, 
might become sinned beyond or sinful beyond measure. And what he's saying is this, as we grow in our understanding of God's glory and God's holiness and God's faithfulness, we simultaneously will grow in our understanding that we are not those things. The, the more beautiful picture we have of God's holiness and glory, the more foul picture we should have of ourselves in regards to our sin. You still with me? For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. Church, if you cannot relate to these next few words. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Come on, somebody. You know, feel that weight with Paul? Feel that weight with me? Gosh, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Hate. And so we're using the New Testament to help figure out the Old Testament. So Samuel here then, thinking back, first, first Samuel 12, Samuel says, keep the commandments. Simple, simple enough. Hey, just keep the commandments. Just 613, no big deal, right? You've been doing it for generations, just do that thing. And yet reveals at the same time the complex reality that we most certainly cannot keep those commands, that we are most certainly not innocent. We need the commands, though, because, again, to state it again and again and again, it is the commands that reveal the character of God. And at the same time, in revealing the character of God, we re it reveals to us that this God King is so different, and he's so other. He's so extraordinary over everything that the nations could ever offer us. Why would we ever want to look like the nations? When we have this sort of character, this blinding standing in front of us, that he's so magnificent in front of us that when we see the Father, like when we see God, the Father, Yahweh, God of the Old Testament, God who's been made flesh in Jesus Christ, whenever he stands before us, it should literally blind us to everything else in the world. His beauty alone should just capture our sights. Everything that we hear, everything that we see, everything that we can say should just be wrapped up and informed by this God. That's what 1 Samuel reveals to me. What about you guys? The commands of God should create a longing in us, church, a desire, a, a need, a craving for this God, revealing at the same time simultaneously we most certainly are not him. But the reality is, is here's what we do. Instead of looking at God's commands as something to be upheld, holistically upheld, holy, holistically upheld, instead of looking at God's commands as something to be upheld, what we do is we look at the commands that we do a really good job of excelling in, and then we rob them of their glory and kind of rub it over all the things we suck at. Can I say it like that? Right? Like we think, man, I do this really good. I don't kill, I don't steal, I don't commit adultery. I'm not that bad. And at the same time, not present with your family at all. I don't kill, I don't steal, I don't destroy, I don't commit adultery, I don't do this. And at the same time, don't know how to get on the ground with your kids and play with them. So what we do is we kind of rob the glory from one area of our life and hope that we can smear enough of it over here that we can kind of look the part. Look up, pick up, keep up the facade. And if we're honest, more often than not, the commands that we do keep, we don't keep them from Jesus. We keep them because we want to look a certain way before the nations. We want to look a certain way before someone, look a certain way before a people group, before others. And so in that, what's, here's what had me caught up this week. It is staggering how quickly a church like ours can turn to religion, even though we have such a high view of the gospel. I mean, we have a high view of scripture, we have a high view of the gospel, God's redeeming work through Jesus, and yet we can turn to religion so quickly. I sat with a table full of leaders this week, and that's all we talked about, for 20, 30 minutes together, and just prayed for one another. 
See, we tend to feel good. We tend to feel great about keeping the commands that we do keep, right? And, and we, wanna, we want that feeling of accomplishment to kind of roll over into other areas of our life because we can't bear the weight of professing, confessing that we're really just not that awesome, that we're not innocent, that we're not blameless, that we're not righteous before this holy God. And the reality is this, that's the definition of religion. The very definition of religion is I do good works, therefore I'm good before God. That's what religion ultimately is. If I do good works, I will be redeemed. If I do good works, I will be saved. If I do good works, then I will fit in. If I do good works, then God will see me a certain way. If I do good works, then that's the definition of religion. But it's most certainly not the gospel. The gospel is God does really great work in your place and accepts you right where you are, knowing that you're not innocent, knowing that you're most certainly guilty, right? But we, we think that I do good works, which makes me good. And here's what happens. Here's the byproduct of that mentality. What happens is this, because you live in a space of I do good, so I must be good. And you're scared to death of ever entering into a place that says, I'm actually not that good. I'm actually not perfect. I'm not great. For all you type A's, you can write that down in your notes. I'm not that awesome. Okay. Just write that down. That's your to do. Write that down. You're just waiting. Well, what do I do then? What do I do? Write that down. You're not innocent. Write that down. Here's what happens. Because we're not, we don't allow ourselves to go there mentally or spiritually, instead of actually setting in, listening, and let, listen, letting like the Holy Spirit bring a good, godly sorrow and grief to the areas of our lives, like the dark areas of our lives that we never want to step in. Because we're not willing to do that, here's what happens. We do not allow the Holy Spirit to come in and actually do the heart surgery that's necessary in those areas of our lives to make us look more like Jesus. Instead, we just look more and more and more like the nations. He's not called us to be like the nation, church. He's called us to be like himself. And until you enter into the dark pits of despair and you feel the godly sorrow and it leads you to confession and repentance and acceptance once again of the gospel, you will continue to look like the world. You will not look like this king. Revealing he might not be your king. He might not be your God, right? Uh, let me share something in regards to this. I want to keep pushing this in. Uh, that I read this week and this little devotion I'm doing full of a bunch of dead old white guys and it says this, this is uh, Francis de Sales, like the 1500s, long time ago. I found this really fitting and good, so I'm going to read it for you. <clears throat> you can follow along. It says this, in light of this, someone giving to fasting thinks himself very devout if he fasts, although his heart may be filled with hatred. Much concerned with sobriety, he doesn't care to wet his tongue with wine, but won't hesitate to drink deep of his neighbor's blood of gossip. Another thinks himself devout because he daily recites a vast number of prayers, but after saying them, he utters the most disagreeable, arrogant, and harmful word at home and among the neighbors. Another gladly takes a coin out of his purse and gives it to the poor, but he cannot extract kindness from his heart to forgive his enemies. In the same manner, many persons clothe themselves with certain outward actions connected with holy devotion, and the world believes that they are truly devout and spiritual, whereas they are in fact nothing but copies and phantoms of devotion. That's 500 years ago. Not much has changed, huh? Phantoms of devotion. We cling to things that make us look re religious while neglecting every other area of our life that we're too scared to enter into. We are phantoms of devotion, church.
a phantom of devotion. Listen here. Apart from the Holy Spirit, you are not righteous. Apart from the Holy Spirit, you are most certainly not innocent. And apart from the Holy Spirit, you are most certainly not holy. There is literally nothing good in you apart from the Holy Spirit. Third point, you need to own it. Like just sit in it for a minute instead of getting mad at me maybe. Just sit in it. I'm talking to you, I'm talking to myself too. We just gotta own this thing. Because the reality is, if you can own this reality that you deserve death when you come confronted to a holy God, it'll change everything. It'll change your whole life. Let's continue reading 1 Samuel, see what he says. Now therefore, verse 16 for me, Miss Linda. Now therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and, he shall, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king. And so real quick, look at me. What's happening here is it didn't rain at this point in the, in the Middle East. And so for it to rain would have been crazy, but for it to do a like, crazy thunderstorm would have kept Israel shook. It would have made no sense to them whatsoever. And so that's all it took to kind of shake up Israel was to bring a thunderstorm, okay? That's how infinite we are. Verse 18, so Samuel called upon the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, pray, listen to this, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all of our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And so the, the challenge to keep the commands has exposed Israel for who Israel is. And you know what they're doing here in the text? They're owning it. Like they're stepping in. They're not stepping away from it. They're actually stepping in and they're saying, man, like that's, we cannot do that. That's an impossibility for us to be able to keep these commands. It's revealing to them the character of God and the reality then that they are most certainly not innocent. And so they have been put into a position to own it. And when it comes to that, you have two options. You can actually own it and you can say, yeah, absolutely. I am not innocent. I am most certainly guilty. I'm not righteous. Or you can turn in pride and you can say, hey, thanks pastor for another sermon to beat me down. I'm not trying to beat you down at all. I'm just trying to reveal the character of God before you and let it expose your and my true character. So we can turn in a great deal of pride and say, I'm over this. Or you can say in humility, that's me. I am not innocent. I am most certainly not righteous. And then here's the beauty. God is not looking for you to be perfect. If you're hearing in your type A mind, I need to be perfect, and that's what you're writing down, he doesn't need you to be perfect, church. He's perfect. He doesn't need you to be something you're not. Here's what he does need, devotion. That's what he's calling us to. Not phantoms of devotion, but true devotion that says, this is my place and my posture before this holy God. And I cannot maintain and I cannot keep the commands. And yet, with great deal of faith, I'm going to pursue this God over and over and over again. Not because of who I am, but because of what he's proven to do to me. He's only brought deliverance. So we don't have to run and hide. And, right? Israel then, he said, they said this, pray for us. They were, they're torn. There's like this reality of repentance again for them where God has brought them back into his presence again like he always does. Again, they can't even call God their God. They say, Samuel, pray to your God. Like they're so taken back right now. Just so taken back. And what I love about this is that the beauty, this is the beauty of God's word for us, church. The beauty of God's word is that it is a mirror. 
Like when we open God's word and the commands of God, we cannot help but to see who we truly are. Like you can lie to everyone else in your life. You can't come before the word of God and be a liar. It just exposes you for who you are. Whenever you read God's word, it reads you. As you turn the pages of God's word, listen, it turns the pages of your soul and exposes the dark, nasty crevices that you most certainly don't want to enter into. But it's in those moments that the Holy Spirit comes in and begins to change you. So you look more and more like the Son and less and less like yourself as you begin to kind of sift through and sift out the commands of God, the word of God. What happens is it sifts you out, separates what's nasty and baggage that just clings to you and it begins to allow you to let go of it, not by your strength or might, but by the Lord's alone. The word of God, listen, it doesn't give you an out. Okay, the word of God, it doesn't hurt your feelings and then immediately apologize. Anybody do that in the room? Oh, I see I overstepped there. <laughs> I apologize. That's me. I'll hurt you. I'll come with something hard and direct and then immediately, oh, so, my bad. Sorry about that. I didn't mean to. Not up here. I'll tell you you're, in, you're not innocent and you're most certainly unrighteous, okay? But face to face. The word of God, man, it forces you into a corner to deal with the reality of your circumstances. It backs you so deep into a corner that you are crying out for the Shekinah glory of Jesus to light your way out of it. That's what we need to happen in this room today, right? And the reality is, like, whenever you own this truth, I'm not righteous. When you own the real truth, you deserve death when you stand before a holy God. It changes everything. It makes everything more palatable. It makes your marriage much more on fire. No matter how bad your marriage is, it's not as bad as the death that God could bring you. You think, dang, this ain't that bad. I thought Tuesday night was bad. Turns out, nope. <laughs> Fighting over tacos, Taco Tuesday, it's all right. It makes your parenting more palatable because you deserve death. Those kids aren't that bad, are they? It can always be worse for us. What happens whenever you take on the reality, I'm not innocent, I'm not righteous, apart from the Holy Spirit, I most certainly deserve death. It produces humility because no one's better than you at that point. What would our culture look like if we own this truth? When you get that, you deserve death. Everything else is a gift. Here's what Samuel says lastly. I'll wrap this thing up for you guys. Verse 20. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. So he's got them in a corner. Do not be afraid. And he doesn't back down. He doesn't apologize. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are, in fact, empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, not because of them, but because of him, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, Samuel says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for me. He said, I'm not going to act like you heathens. I'm going to keep praying for you. And I will instruct you to in good and in the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart for consider what great things he's done for you. But if you still do wickedly, church, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And so Samuel does not give Israel an out and I cannot give us an out. Samuel comes very clear and he says this to Israel. Do not turn to things that are empty. They will not profit you. Only turn to the Lord, trust the Lord and continue to come back to the Lord. And then he says this, do not be afraid. Right? It's incredible that Samuel can say, do not be afraid, for the Lord himself will deliver you. In the midst of their sin, in the midst of their rebellion, it is the Lord who will redeem them. 
And so that's true for us then as we get into the gospel that we can set, I can stand up here and I can say, hey, you're not innocent, you're not righteous, not apart from the Holy Spirit, you live in a great deal of rebellion, you don't know the commands, all those things are true. You know what else is also true? The Lord God will deliver you. In the midst of sin and in the midst of depravity, whenever all feels lost, all we know, church, is deliverance. Whenever Samuel told, uh, reminded Israel, he said, all you know is deliverance. Every time you came into a situation where you need to be delivered, God delivered you. And what's incredible about that is that's still true for us. That whenever we look forward, what do we see? We see the coming of Jesus Christ. And when we look behind us, what do we see? We see the cross of Christ. We are no different than Israel. Deliverance on all sides, everywhere around us, is what we have seen and what we've got to experience. And that's only possible because of the work that Jesus has done. He's the only one who's truly innocent. Who's Jesus? He's literally the commands of God that have put on flesh. The commands of God have walked among us. The incarnate Christ, that's how much stock God puts into his law and into his commands that he puts flesh on it and then allows or calls Jesus to walk innocently. And then he puts Jesus on the cross. What does Jesus do on the cross? He dies. He takes the death that Israel deserves. He takes the death that we deserve so that we can say, you know what? I do deserve death. Hallelujah. And Jesus has taken my death for me. And he has sent me, he has sent me the Holy Spirit so that I can live to fight another day. We can walk out this life as simultaneously sinners and saints, as Martin Luther would say. We can look at the cross and say, oh, I see my wickedness. And at the same time, we can say, but oh, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who reigns and resonates in me. And then check this out. Let me push the gospel one step further, and then I promise I'll actually be done. The Holy Spirit, listen to what the Holy Spirit does. 2 Corinthians 3. Not going to be on the screen. Listen to what it does. He writes the commands that you can't follow on your heart. They're no longer written on tablets of stone, the Apostle Paul says, but rather they have been written on the hearts of men and women. And so what does that mean? That means that even in the midst of our depravity, in the midst of our sin, in our midst not recalling the commands, not knowing the commands, we still are walking pictures of God's grace and faithfulness to his people. We are literally a walking embodiment of the incarnate Christ that says that we are walking out lives of confession and repentance and belief and confession and repentance and belief and confession and repentance and belief, not just in the areas that are easy, church, but in the areas that are oh so difficult. The Holy Spirit keeps us sealed in Christ forever. He's literally accomplished everything for us in our place as our substitute because he is the true and the better king. Amen? Yeah. All right, let's stand and take communion of that. That's incredible. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians. It says this. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant, new promise in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The beautiful reality that we get to live in as Christians is this, God has redeemed us. And not just redeemed, but God has most certainly delivered us. Uh, Not just in theory, church, but in reality. Like, because the Lord sent us the Holy Spirit, check this out, every millisecond of our existence is being redeemed. Like every single moment, we are being redeemed by the power of the Holy Spirit through the work of the Son, simply for the namesake of God the Father, because he said he would do it. 
nothing that we did, nothing we could accomplish. And so when we take this meal, it is that reminder, the bread representing Christ's body, the cup representing Christ's blood. And as you ingest that in, you actually get to take that in and be reminded that in the moment, every single moment of your life, you're being sealed again and again and again into covenant faithfulness with the Father. Amen. All right, take that and feast when you want.